You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. Turn your Bible to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking just at a short passage here. That's a part of a greater passage, but I felt the burden to, to helicopter here this morning, given the content of this particular passage that is centered on the gospel. John chapter 10, I want to thank everyone that was involved with the nearest heart weekend, the banquet and everything else that was involved with that. I want to thank, we had over 200 volunteers across several churches involved serving on Friday night. And I want to thank the nearest heart leadership team as well. What a critical ministry uh, that is uh, for our caregivers, for special needs image bearers. And so I'm very grateful for you. It's just a sign of health uh, when we, we love uh, those who desperately need our love and have the worth, status, and dignity of every other image bearer. And so I'm extraordinarily grateful and encouraged by your ministry. Well, if you would look with me, uh, and we're going to be looking at 11 to 13, but verse 10, I think, needs to inform this passage Jesus said, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, that is the the sheep, may have life and is eternal life and have it abundantly. Not just quantitative, but qualitative life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, a passage that is centered on the good shepherd, uh, the one we all need. We pray, Lord, that this message today would be used by the Holy Spirit to grow our, our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for him. Lord, we find it convicting where we need to be convicted, that we would be rebuked where we need to be rebuked that we would be taught where we need to be taught, encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Father, we pray that you would meet us at our point of need this morning through the means of the preaching of the Word of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, our great shepherd. Amen. On Wednesday, Sarah Sneed's beloved brother, Ted, drowned while saving his son, Eddie, keeping him from drowning in the process. He gave his life so that Eddie could live. 
Though the details differ, uh, his sacrifice reminds me of an event that occurred 80 years ago this month, February 1943, World War II. An Army transport ship called the Dorchester was carrying over 900 soldiers. Many of them were teenagers. It's hard to fathom. But teenage boys and taking them to the battlefront in World War II. And in the middle of the night, that February evening, in the icy cold Atlantic waters, a German submarine shot a torpedo and it hit the middle of the ship, the Dorchester, and it began to sink. The soldiers and everyone on the ship, they began searching desperately in, in the dark for life boats and, and life uh, jackets. And on board, there were four military chaplains. I want to honor their names. John Washington, Clark Poling, Alexander Good, and George Fox. And so with the Dorchester rapidly sinking in those icy waters, it became apparent that there was a shortage of life jackets. And so these four chaplains, recognizing that, took their life jackets off of them and they gave it to four men who needed those jackets. And... They died in these four men's place. More than 600 died on that ship that night. 230 were saved. But four of the 230 that were saved were saved because these four chaplains died in their place. Soldiers said later that as they were watching this from lifeboats and in the water with their life jackets, they saw these four chaplains stand side by side, holding hands together as the, sink, uh, the ship is sinking, and they saw them praying as they were going down with the, she, uh, the ship. According to the Army War College account, survivor John Ladd said of these four men's selfless act, it was the finest thing I have seen or hope to see this side of heaven. Five years later, in 1948, a first-class three-cent postage stamp was issued with their pictures on the stamp. If you go to the Pentagon today, in fact, there, there's a stained-glass window that's devoted to the honor of, of these four men. A couple of thoughts here. Dying in the place of another so that that person might live, might just well be the most honorable thing a person can do. In John chapter 15, uh, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. With that said, no mere human no mere 
sinner can secure another sinner's eternal life by this act. Psalm 49, verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. The price is too high. God cannot be bought off. In time, those four men who were saved would die anyway. In fact, as noble as these four men's act was, it was the highest of nobility, not even that act could secure for themselves eternal life because they are sinners and God cannot be bought off. There's nothing any sinner can do to attain eternal life in and of himself. The second thought from that event, even though these four could never attain eternal life by their sacrifice, the national response at the time, and it was remarkable, reflects how our hearts have been wired, how they have been hardwired. We have been made for the one, the good shepherd, who would come and lay down his life, not just so that we could live a few more years like these four men, but so that we might have eternal life and that more abundantly. And we see this in this section of the passage, a very important passage. That's why I'm hovering over this particular aspect of this passage because this really, this passage extends to the end of verse 21. We'll look at the, the rest of it next week. So we only have one point today, but boy, it's an e eternally important point. The one point is this, the good shepherd dies for his sheep. Let me say that again. The good shepherd dies for his sheep. If you would look with me in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, we're going to see this five times in this passage. We'll see it four times next week, but one time today. In four verses, he says this, that he lays down his life for his sheep. Here, verse 15, verse 17, and verses, in verse 18, two different times. Now, this comes right off the heels of verse 10. In verse 10, in a verse that many of you have memorized, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How do we know that Jesus offers abundant life and how do we know he can actually secure it? The answer is he lays down his life for your abundant life for your abundant eternal life. In other words, an infinite price has to be paid for your eternal and abundant life. And again, note the I am statement. I am the good shepherd. 
Seven times in the Gospel of John, John gives us words from Jesus that begins with I am, that takes us back to Exodus 3. So he is, he is connecting himself with the God of the burning bush when Moses said, what is your name? And he says, I am that I am. Jesus is affirming, I am equal in essence and glory to the God of the burning bush. And seven times he says in John, I am with a predicate following. For instance, we've already seen, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. In John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. All that he is, is all that we need. <laughs> we need the living bread. We need the light to overcome our darkness. We saw last week, I am the door. We need access to the Father. And here, I am the good shepherd. You need a shepherd. The worst thing in the world is to be shepherdless. I am the good shepherd. And because he says I am, it lets us know this isn't just a mere man shepherding us. This is the God-man coming to bear as our shepherd. The Old Testament had two promises about the shepherd. It promised that Yahweh would shepherd us, and it promised us that a seed, a son from David, would shepherd us. In this one man, we have God, a very God, and the son of David coming to bear as our shepherd. And I want you to note the definite article here. Don't overlook that word, the. Now, if that word the was missing, we could say, well, he's, he's one of many shepherds. But he says here, I am the good shepherd. In other words, he is the only good shepherd in the truest sense. So you either have Jesus as your good shepherd or you don't have a good shepherd. Three texts call Jesus the shepherd in the New Testament from three different authors. Hebrews calls him the great shepherd, Hebrews 13, I think verse 20. Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, and boy, did he need shepherding. He called him the great shepherd, or the chief shepherd, rather. And here, we see that he is the good shepherd. But for this good shepherd to bring eternal life, abundant life, to fallen sheep, there was a cost. He must lay down his life for his sheep. Now, that one line, and that's why I'm parking here today, is a great summary of the, the doctrine of atonement. Now, maybe you aren't familiar with that term atonement. Maybe you, you are familiar with it, but you don't know what it means. It comes from the Hebrew word kippur. Have you ever heard of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? So the Day of Atonement, two lambs or two animals were sacrificed. Well, one wasn't actually put to death. They 
they just banished him in the, the wilderness as the scapegoat. They symbolically transfer the sins of the people to this one, and they just banished him in the wilderness as if to say, your sins are now, your, the guilt of your sin is now expiated. But then there was another who was put to death, and his, and his blood was sprinkled on uh, the caporet, <laughs> um, the, the mercy seat where God's wrath was satisfied. And it was through those two sacrifices, one propitiating the wrath of God and one expiating the guilt of our sin, that we were reconciled to God. William Tyndale, who was the first man to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. We owe so much to William Tyndale. If you've never heard of him, you need to thank the Lord for him right now. He was coming to terms with the, the notion of a um, Kippur and, 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 and how he could translate it to the English-speaking people, the lay people, without being too complicated. And so he had this idea, at this sacrifice, at two, the one meat. Holy God and sinful man. At two, the one meat. Or at one, the two meat, rather. At one, the two meat. And he came up with a term. A term that had never been invented. He invented it. Atonement. At one, the two meat. That's the doctrine of atonement. And so this statement, Jesus gave his life for his sheep, is a concise statement on the doctrine of atonement, which means it's one of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible, which means, as with all the important and central doctrines of the faith, it's one of the most vulnerable to attack. I wouldn't say it's really vulnerable, though, but it is subject to attack. Just this week... A professing Christian named Megan Bailey wrote an article. And get this, this is the title of the article. And it's hard to even say in a pulpit. Jesus did not die on the cross for our sins. That was the name of the article. And here's what she said, a professing Christian. You will not find a single passage in the entire Bible that says anything about Jesus paying the penalty of our sins. That's because this is a Christian belief, and she puts it in quotations, that the Bible does not teach. Rather, it was a theology created by humans. The name for this belief is penal substitutionary atonement. This theology was not part of Christian doctrine for the first 1,600 years after Jesus was crucified. I can imagine people reading that going, I did not know that. Neither did God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then she says, you may now be asking, why did Jesus die on the cross if he didn't die for our sins? And her answer is, he died on the cross to show us what love truly looks like in action. This is utter nonsense. 
If I wanted to show you how much I loved you and a, and a, a train was coming down the track and I said, here's how much I loved you and I step in front of the train, I have not proven that I love you. I've proven I'm insane, right? <laughs> now, let's say you're on the track and there's nothing you can do about it. You are stuck on that track and I somehow push you off the track and take the train in your place. I have proven my love for you. It took substitution unto death to prove it. Of course, Bailey's opposition is not new. It's as old as liberalism. It is old as liberalism. Opposition like this goes way back and it arises from a total, I mean comprehensive denial of the importance of justice. Or how love and justice can even be compatible with each other. John Stott says this in his book, The Cross of Christ, all inadequate doctrines of the atonement are due to inadequate doctrines of God and man. So in inadequate doctrine of atonement, God is not exalted, he's debased, and man is exalted, right? If we bring God down to our level and, our, and raise ourselves to his, so it's a seesaw theology. On a seesaw, one can only be up at one time. One can only be exalted at one time, as you know. So if we bring God down, by definition, we're going to exalt ourselves. If we bring God down to our level and raise ourselves to his, then of course we see no need for a radical salvation, let alone for a radical atonement to secure it. When, on the other hand, we have glimpsed the blinding glory of the holiness of God and have been so convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit that we tremble before God and acknowledge what we are, namely hell-deserving sinners, then and only then does the necessity of the cross appear. So obvious that we are astonished we never saw it before. So is Mrs. Bailey correct? Not for a moment. And let me address her assertion here that this doctrine of penal substitution, and I'm going to define what penal substitution is in a moment, but broadly speaking, Christ dying in our place, but this assertion that it was invented later, after 1,600 years of church history. Now, church history and tradition does not have the same level of authority for us as, as the Bible, but we are a tradition people. Um, tradition allows those who've gone before us to have a vote. And, and so if you have a consensus, a 2,000-year consensus of what a doctrine teaches from the Bible then there's probably a lot of accuracy in that consensus. 
2,000 years of minds thinking about these things. If you disagree, in other words, with church history, you may be right, but you're probably not. So I just want to give you a couple of quotes from early, early in the church, as early as the same century as when Jesus walked the earth, died, and was raised from the grave. Clement of Rome in 96 AD, same century, right? Here's what he says. Because of the love he had for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us and his flesh for our flesh and his life for our lives. Now, he doesn't use the term penal substitution, but the concept is there. He gave his life for our life. In other words, if he didn't give his life for our life, our lives would be under judgment. Then there's a letter. We don't know who wrote it. Church historians have talked about that. We don't know who wrote this letter to Diognetius, but it was written around 125 to someone named Diognetius. 125 AD. And here's what this letter says. In his mercy, he took upon himself our sins. He gave himself, he himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us. The holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. Oh, the sweet exchange that the wickedness of the many should be hidden in the one who is just. Do you get that? He didn't become a sinner on the cross, but our sins, our wickedness was imputed to him, credited to him on the cross, and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. One more. We could go on forever. Cyril of Jerusalem. He died in 386. We don't know exactly when this statement was made, but it was in the fourth century. We were enemies of God through sin. And God had decreed the death of the sinner. You see that? That is our natural state. One of two things, therefore, was necessary. Either that God, in his truth, should destroy all men, or that in his loving kindness, he should remit the sentence. But see the wisdom of God. He preserved the truth of his sentence and the exercise of loving kindness, Christ took our sins in his body upon the tree. And so Mrs. Bailey got church history wrong. But more importantly, quite, uh, importantly, we need to ask, did she get scripture wrong? Yes, she did. Um, for instance, what do you think the sacrificial system was about under the old covenant? God's people could not keep God's law. And so God gave them um, kind of a training wheels education in what they needed, a Messiah who would come and bear their sins. And so the sacrificial system was instituted and these animals died daily because of sinners who needed atonement. But perhaps the most important passage in the Bible, or in the Old Testament rather, on this notion of the Messiah bearing our sins is in Isaiah 53. Now, what's remarkable about Isaiah, 
Isaiah began his ministry in the year Uzziah died, which meant he started his ministry in 740 BC, 740 years before the coming of Christ. And so he's writing during that time period. And in Isaiah 53, he's contemplating this suffering servant who will come. And he's going to stop the sin cycle for the world. And here's how he's going to do it. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's as, as if it's already been accomplished in Isaiah's mind because he was a prophet and he knew this would, would come. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. How can you take your sin so lightly when you see language like that? Think about a loved one being pierced. Your Messiah was pierced for the sins that perhaps you are enjoying. Verse 8 or verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He laid it on him, put it on him as he was on the cross. Stricken, verse 8, for the transgression of my people. Verse 10, his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. That's the Messiah. Mrs. Bailey says the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus dying for our sins. Her Bible is closed. How about the New Testament? In 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 15, uh, it says 5. That's a misprint on my, that's my fault, not the, 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 the guys who put that on the screen. I just realized that it's 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says... There are certain truths that are of first importance. That's the, that's the language he uses. In other words, all truth is important, but some truths are more important than other truths. I mean, Jezebel died. That's a truth. Jesus died. That's an important truth. And it says, Christ died for. Now, the word there, pair. You would spell it in English if you wanted to put it in your Bible. H-Y-P-E-R in English. Who pair? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse who pair for us. We don't have this on the screen, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Karl Barth, I and mean, I disagree with a whole lot about what, when, now when Karl Barth was, was, was off, he was really off. But when he was on, he was on, which made him dangerous. <laughs> but one of the things I really appreciated about him was an answer he was asked one time, what is the most important word in the Bible? Now, we could say God, Christ, and we would be right. But I liked his answer. 
Dr. Barb, what is the most important word in the Bible? His answer was, who pair? For. Christ died for our sins. And so these texts have that word, who pair, for, in them. So does our text here in verse 11. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. Who pair? Who pair for the sheep? This is penal substitution. Now I want to give you a definition of penal substitution, a more fancy one that I hope you can memorize. Penal substitution. God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us. <laughs> Who pair? To suffer for us, to, to suffer instead of us, the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. That is penal substitution. And Jesus did this. Not because you're the good sheep. <laughs> he did it because he's the good shepherd who saves us from, the text tells us, the wolves. The wolves. He who is a hired hand, verse 12, and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep but sees the wolf coming. He saves us from the wolves. Of course, that's not literal wolves. The, the wolf is one of the great predators of the sheep. Um, in the passage, or in this book, you might say, it, it's the sheep's greatest enemies. Now, contextually, false teachers, false sheep, or false shepherds, rather, are wolves. It's one of the most dangerous external enemies we have is, is false teachers. We, we saw him deal with that in chapter 9 and the first section of, of chapter 10. But when you consider the gospel of John, our greatest enemies are not outside of us. The greatest enemies, the greatest wolves are inside of us. Our sin is perhaps the greatest wolf. And that's why uh, John the Baptist said that, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He comes to take care of the wolves, the greatest wolves in our life. Death and judgment are the result of that sin. Those are wolves, death and judgment. John 5, 24. Jesus says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged he will not be condemned, but has eternal life and has crossed over from death, that's your natural state, death, eternal death, from death to life. Now, Jesus laying down his life benefits the entire world. It benefits every single individual. That's why you can say, in a very real sense, Jesus died uh, for the world. It's true. Herman Bovink said, his work 
has value for all. All means all. Even for those who have not believed and will never believe in him. Since it is for his sake that the world was spared. Without Jesus Christ, the world would not exist. For it would necessarily either be destroyed or be a hell. And that's how the cross benefits the entire world. But we're not universalist. The whole world's not going to be saved. There's a whole lot of scripture that seem to indicate there will be few who find the way. And so him laying down his life is only effective for his sheep. Propitiating the wrath of God for his sheep. Those that we will see in chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, the sheep the Father's given him. But the main point here is that this was polar opposite, absolutely polar opposite to how the hired hands felt about the flock. Look with me in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, see the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So here, Jesus contrasts himself not with the thieves and robbers. We saw them in last week's sermon, but with the hired hands. Um, Often in an agrarian society, people would own sheep and they would get busy and there were times they couldn't care for their sheep as they needed to. And so they would hire uh, particular individuals to care for the sheep for the time. The thieves and the robbers are the false teachers. The thieves and the robbers are the false shepherds and they are clearly wicked. We saw this last week. The hired hand is not wicked per se. He's just simply more committed to his own preservation than to the preservation of his sheep. Now, who are the hired hands? Don Carson says it's, we're not completely sure. We don't really know who the hired hands are. Um, but I would submit, and D.A. Carson would submit, that in comparison to the one good shepherd, even the best of under-shepherds are hired hands. That's hard to say, but in comparison to the good shepherd, there's only one good shepherd. Under-shepherds, and I am your under-shepherd, can only approximate what the good shepherd will do and can do and who he is. I was talking to Jordan this morning. He said, do you, uh, do you have downtime? Do you have breaks? Yeah, pastors have to have downtimes. The good shepherd, he doesn't have any downtime. He's always shepherding you, okay? Now, good under shepherds, prayerfully, if they are good, will grow to be more like the good shepherd. But we will let you down. We cannot eternally preserve, protect, provide, and guide. We will not guide you infallibly. I told someone this week, you can trust me, but you can't trust me to make perfect decisions. You can trust the good shepherd. The good shepherd. 
So my personal take here is that the hired hand is, is primarily a contrast. He's contrasting all other shepherds, under shepherds, to stress the characteristics of the good shepherd. There's only one. And that one good shepherd, if you are his sheep, and not everyone here is, is his sheep, you have to follow him as proof that you're his sheep. If you're one of his sheep, the good shepherd is all in on your good. To the point of the cross, to the point of the cross where the greatest enemies are defeated. That's who he is. And if you are a sheep this morning, that's who he is for you. For you. Now, we're going to see more of this next week. But be encouraged. He is all that he is as a shepherd for you, his sheep. Everything a shepherd can be in an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable way is who Jesus is for you if you are a sheep, if you're a believer, if you have, that is, trusted in his provision for your sin. If you have confessed, I am a sinner, I'm going to humble myself and, and tell the world I'm a sinner through baptism. And I'm going to tell the world, my only hope is the good shepherd who laid down his life for me. If that's what you believe, you're a sheep. But if you have not come to that place, you don't have a shepherd. You don't have a good shepherd, that is. You have a shepherd. Psalm 49, verse 14. Death is your shepherd. I didn't put that in there. For those who reject the good shepherd, death shall be their shepherd. Psalm 49, verse 14. All that death is, even deathly decisions you make in this life are the result of not having a good shepherd lead you. Deathly choices that you, you make in this life are the result of you not having a good shepherd that provides for you. Death shall be your shepherd. Last week I concluded the sermon by reflecting briefly on what the good shepherd provides from Psalm 23. Today I want to close, and this is primarily directed to those of you who either do not have the good shepherd as shepherd for you. You're not a believer, or maybe you are born again. Maybe you are a believer, but somehow, some way, you've developed good shepherd amnesia. You've lost sight that you have a good shepherd. David Pallison, the great scholar David Pallison, he's dead now, but he offered what is known as the anti-Psalm 23 and I want to read it to you. This is what describes you. If you're honest, you'll, you'll say, yes, that describes me. 
This is the anti-Psalm 23 for those who do not have the good shepherd. Or you may have him, but you've developed shepherd amnesia. This describes you. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. This is the opposite of Psalm 23. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. How foolish. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I really can't trust anyone. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me. Sometimes it's sickening. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. It's a living death, and then I die. And it doesn't have to be that way. Amen. Why in the world would you go shepherdless? The good shepherd is all that you need. The good shepherd overcomes all of this despair of this anti-Psalm 23. And we want to offer you to him this morning. He offers himself. All we can do is just share in words that if you will come to him, he'll be your good shepherd. And so as Adam and the musicians come forward... The Bible teaches there's only two shepherds, the good shepherd and death. What world do we live in that you would choose death over the good shepherd? Don't do that. I'm not a pastor who manipulates emotions. That is so dangerous. But I am appealing to you, come to the good shepherd Repent of your shepherdlessness ex existence and bow the knee to him and he will be all that you need and more. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.